everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. For a while now, I've been trying to reconcile what I've been taught about free speech, both in school and through engagement and observation with others. The narrative, at least my takeaway, has been that free speech exists in order to ensure that even the most marginalized have a voice and an avenue to express grievances about the way our society is run. That primarily it was intended to allow us to criticize the government without fear of penalty or repercussion from that same government. Also, while some people draw a distinction between free speech and speech generally, others don't seem to. I notice there are three primary camps I come across. First is the person who adopts free speech as a rule in private spaces. They say that if people refuse to shop at their store or let them present a talk at a college campus due to ideological differences, that's a violation of their free speech. Next is the camp that would dispute that freedom of association is the same as free speech violation. That is, if I decide to spend my money at a store I agree with ideologically, rather than one I don't, that's my right to associate as I will. However, while not technically a violation of free speech under U.S. law, they adopt the position that it's somehow just as egregious to do such a thing. They adopt the phrase cancel culture to describe what they seem to perceive as punishment for free expression. This reminds me of the time conservative Christian creationists rebranded creationism as intelligent design and managed to pull the wool over quite a few people's eyes by getting them to go even so far as to promote intelligent design being taught in school science classrooms. Evidence surfaced to show this rebranding as the ruse it was, but for a good while I recall talking to a lot of secular and atheist people who were unwittingly defending what amounted to creationism in schools. Christian churches managed to enlist people outside the church to do their promotion work for them. And the pushback, especially on the left, to cancel culture, feels very much the same to me. In general, I hear people saying, no, this is not free speech violation, but it's just as bad as free speech violation, and I'm critical of people who advocate for this type of freedom of association activism. The final group addresses speech calling for damage or death to others, such as genocide, eugenics, expulsion from the country, and so on, by explaining they are comfortable criticizing, deplatforming in private spaces, or banning such speech outright. But what interested me was the division among people who identify as being left-leaning. And as many pointed out, there was a rash of folks on the left who seemed a thousand times more upset that fascism was being denied platforms on college campuses than that we were seeing a rise in groups advocating fascism. Nearly all of the folks I knew who were calling for deplatforming were in groups that were directly threatened by this particular speech. And by far, those who were criticizing what they referred to as cancel culture were in groups that would not be harmed by this speech, or, when they were in these groups, they were very often among the most privileged members in those groups who would most certainly not bear the full brunt of the damage. And let's be clear, it is damage when we see a rise in violence associated with a rise in the amount of marginalizing rhetoric. Many of us are familiar with the term stochastic terrorism, But for anyone unfamiliar, it simply means that by escalating my rhetoric to try and stoke fear or hate, I increase the odds that some random citizen will take up the challenge that lies just beneath the surface of my language that someone needs to do something to stop this before it's too late. 
And most often, this type of tool is problematic when it's trickling down from the top of the silo. That is, when people have platforms in power, these type of almost calls to violence have real impact. Joe Citizen, working two jobs and barely scraping by, doesn't have the platform or the power to affect change himself, nor to enlist others through a call to action. He has no time, no resources, no platform. Sure, he can speak, and maybe no one will stop him, but his speech, due to his station, is ineffective. It's the politicians, TV and radio show hosts, the most privileged people in our society that have the microphones. And when and if marginalized people start to make headway, capitalism, racism, and sexism are all there to smash it back down, whether by riding in and setting fire to the town, or by disrupting a social media platform that served as a space for community engagement for their demographic. But all this got me thinking more about free speech. Was it a shield for the downtrodden or a weapon for oppressors? And outside of watching how it functioned before my eyes, how could I know? Was it like any tool? A weapon or a shield? I started to consider free speech in the same ways I'd been in very recent years pondering the entire system we have going on here in the U.S., So much of what I've been taught about our system and its foundations and its tools had turned out to not be what I'd learned in school. I was taught we're democratic. And while we do vote, the system has mechanisms in place to thwart outcomes, so that people who have the most votes aren't guaranteed to win the elected position. With two senators per state, the voters in less populous states have more power tied up in their votes than those of us in more populated states. With districts being drawn to represent election strategy rather than to serve the population, and all the many little tweaks like decreasing polling stations and hours, this serves to undermine particular voting demographics. The United States plays fast and loose with the word democracy. I've heard all of the excuses for why things here are the way they are, but it's just more words to finally say, some people's votes in the U.S. count more than others and it serves to gatekeep power in the hands of people of privilege. No matter how much you dance and sing, that really doesn't change. So when I look back at our founding fathers, and the founding of the nation, and the system they set up, and the reality of what they were attempting to build, what do I see? Free speech is the First Amendment to the Constitution, adopted in 1791. At that time, Women still could not vote or hold office. Black people were still enslaved. Non-white residents still could not gain legal, naturalized citizenship. Today, we take it for granted that voting is speech. But at the time the First Amendment was passed, only land-owning white men could vote. One estimate I read suggested this was about 6% of all the people living in the United States at that time. That would mean that 94% of residents were not provided with free speech rights as we understand free speech today. It seems pretty clear that our understanding of the intent of this legislation was nowhere close to what we think it is today. Laws forbidding women to vote or hold office. Policies barring their path to higher education. Laws designating enslaved people as less human, denying them votes, forbidding them from even learning to read. Indigenous people were being disappeared. It was a reality that most people in the nation had no leverage to change the power dynamics in their favor or petition the government to get the boot off their necks. They couldn't even threaten those with political power with withholding a vote. 
And the historic narrative is all about how free speech was put in place, not that it eventually evolved, but that the intent of it was to provide the least of us with protection to speak out against the system. It was, I was told, supposed to defend those of us who needed to advocate for change to address grievances and oppression. But looking back through time, it was the very people who were oppressed and had legitimate grievances being wholly barred from the power and resources, completely unable to self-direct their own destinies, who were denied these rights they needed to even give a voice to their situation. When suffragettes tried to vote, they were arrested. When they stood on public sidewalks holding signs, they were arrested and imprisoned for obstructing a sidewalk. When it came to people who were enslaved, simply advocating for emancipation became punishable by death in some states. And this was in a nation where the founders had put in place a constitutional amendment that guaranteed a right to free speech, that the government would not impede a person's right to speak. And yet our government declared some people to not be legal people and then threatened them with death. If that isn't a barrier to free speech, what would be? So I saw a huge disconnect between what I could plainly see about our history and what I was being told about what free speech meant. If I weren't being assured constantly by my peers on the left that the reason for free speech was to protect and defend the little people from the privileged and the powerful that have their hands on the levers of government, I might think the real reason for free speech is to ensure that only a small minority of people, those with privilege and power, have a voice and a platform and influence, and that those they oppress and marginalize are kept silent under threats of penalties, that the times marginalized people have actually gotten this system in particular free speech protections to protect them, it's only been incidental and not the primary purpose of the tool. Like struggling with an assailant in order to find some way to use his own gun against him. At any rate, this has been rattling around in my brain for a few years, really. It hasn't consumed me. It's just been something I've noticed, like many other things I take note of around me. But just the other day, I was chatting with a friend, and some books came up in the conversation. I have a nice little community library near where I live. I used to have a card there, but I've let it lapse. My life got busy, and reading fell off my hobby list. However, the library is on a route I often take on weekends. So I feel a guilty twinge when I sit there at the light, looking across the street like I should be using it. It's there. It's a great public service. It's something I support. So why don't I use it? My work that day was light. My friend was recommending books, so what was stopping me? I grabbed my bag and headed out to the library where I registered for a new card. My intent was not to stay and browse. However, once I got the card, I thought it couldn't hurt to look around. The building had been renovated since I'd been there last time, and I walked up and down the aisles to see how they'd reorganized it. Home decor, cooking, biographies, politics. I stopped here and there to pull a book and thumb through it before returning it to the shelf. A book about small rooms. I thought of a friend who would love that. A few books on BLM that might be interesting. And then I saw one called The Myth of Capitalism. I pulled it down and started to read the foreword. I looked at the back cover. I hesitated. I reminded myself how busy I was and that I wasn't there to check out books just to get my card. So I returned it to the shelf and kept walking until I came to a spine that read The Case Against Free Speech. And OMG, right? Had someone actually written this book? Was it actually a book on what I'd been wondering about, or was it something entirely different? I opened it up. How many pages? Not too long. Okay, what's the narrative? 
And while it wasn't exactly what I'd been thinking about, it was similar enough to grab my attention. The dedication is simply to Heather Heyer, the young woman who was run down by a white supremacist supporter in her hometown of Charlottesville, where she'd gone to counter-protest in order to show the world that Charlottesville was not home to violent racists. And while it's tempting to conclude that she was ironically wrong, it's important to note that her killer actually wasn't from Charlottesville and was one of the white supremacists who had converged on her city as an interloper to show his support for keeping the country as racist as possible. When I read the introduction, I felt a twinge of disappointment. It declared, This book is not anti-free speech. It is anti the concept of free speech. It's an important distinction. It went on to say, in sum, that it's not a book advocating for a right to say or not say anything, that it's not, quote, about whether the First Amendment is good or bad. This book is about why the First Amendment is nearly irrelevant, except in its power as a propaganda tool, unquote. And with that, I was hooked. I had no idea what the author, P.E. Moskowitz, was suggesting, but it was a subject I was interested in. And they had put energy and time into thinking about this thing that I had been thinking about, and at worst, I get home and it's a crappy read. So I closed the book and went back to the aisle where I'd seen the myth of capitalism, grabbed that as well, and brought them home. As comic relief, the new-to-me self-checkout, I suspect, is some sort of witchcraft. I scanned my new card, and then it told me to set the stacked books on a pad, which I did. The moment they touched the pad... The titles of both books came up on screen, with no scanning and no unstacking. I'm sure someone who understands this technology will explain it to me, but it was pretty clever. When I got home, I decided to read the free speech book first. I'm actually still reading it. I'm about a quarter of the way in, and I'm glad I checked it out. I described it to a friend in chat by saying, it's like I've been smelling something fishy for a while, but I wasn't sure where it was coming from. Then I opened this book, and it was like someone walking me outside the room to a dumpster in the parking lot, opening the lid to a dumpster full of rotting fish and saying, here's what you've been smelling. The book wastes no time laying it bare. There are so many quotes that are so relevant all through this book, and I'd like to read a few with commentary. First, I resonated with the introduction a lot more than I thought I would. This line particularly came with so much clarity. Quote, As I hope to prove in this book, free speech has never really existed because freedom and liberty have never really existed for the vast majority of Americans, unquote. Moskowitz goes on to ask, quote, So why write a book on free speech if I think the term is essentially meaningless? Because the concept holds so much weight in our country. It is much easier to talk about the ability of conservatives to speak on college campuses than about the systemic racism, sexism, and transphobia college students experience. And those are the things that the students who protest campus visits by right-wing conservatives are fighting against, Moskowitz examines the line between protected and unprotected speech and concludes there actually is no line. There are just people using the First Amendment to a particular purpose that serves them. There isn't any difference between action and speech, as many actions have been found to be included in free speech when we study cases. Additionally, speaking is an action, the act of influencing or attempting to influence someone else, to motivate, to instill fear, 
We pay people good money for their ability to communicate in marketing, advertising, speech writing. We have social media influencers and talk show hosts with rabid followings, political personalities who hold sway over mobs. It's ridiculous to suggest that speech has no influence. And it's also inarguable that acting without speaking is also very often conveying ideas covered under free speech. So the question becomes, how do we decide when to curtail free speech and when to allow it? Moskowitz uses an example of someone breaking into my house to shout their views at me. Most of us would agree that my right to privacy and to be secure in my own home would take precedence over someone's right to speak in that situation, even if they're not threatening me. As Moskowitz notes, I might in some states even have the right to legally kill someone in that situation. So we recognize that there can be rights in conflict with free speech. The only question is how we are deciding which rights win and which rights lose in a contest against free speech. And for this, Moskowitz goes back through history to see how speech has been handled by the courts and also what types of power and influence have been exerted on our system to own free speech and what it means and how it applies. In other words, not just where is the line, but who controls that line and for what purpose. There have been pivotal points along the way to get us from what was created as a shield for privileged landed white men to preserve their self-determination against one another, and as a weapon for them to control and exploit the destinies of literally everyone else, to where we are today, a point where we have adopted a belief that free speech is actually intended as a shield for those who were once horribly oppressed by those who granted it only to the privileged few. So let's have a look at how it was actually used and what got us to where we are today. The following is an excerpt from the book. The early consensus from the government on the First Amendment appears to have been that it in no way granted Americans the right to free speech. Some of the first laws following its passage were ones that today we'd consider to be in direct conflict with its meaning. Just a few years after the Bill of Rights was signed, Congress passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, a group of bills that, among other things, allowed the federal government to prosecute anyone critical of the government. While the acts were ostensibly passed to strengthen the United States as it prepared for a possible war with France, the dozens of prosecutions carried out under the acts were against political enemies of the Federalist-controlled government. Vermont Representative Matthew Lyon, the first person to be prosecuted, was convicted for writing a letter to the editor of a local paper, as well as a poem, that were critical of John Adams and his government. And as I read on, there was a clear example of how the rights of the marginalized can be defended, even while the goal is to sustain oppression. The following case allowed for dissemination of abolitionist materials, but ironically, the goal was to preserve slavery. Again, from the book. After Thomas Jefferson was elected president in 1800, most of the acts that could land you in prison for speaking out against the government were repealed or allowed to expire. But that didn't actually stop the government from persecuting citizens for exercising their supposed rights to free speech. In the early and mid-1800s, as abolitionists worked to persuade the country to end slavery, most southern states enacted laws that prevented the distribution of abolitionist literature. Virginia, for example, could prosecute anyone distributing material, quote, calculated to incite, unquote, rebellion among slaves. The law carried a maximum sentence of death for black people. Other southern states had similarly harsh laws on their books, but the flood of abolitionist literature, especially coming in from the north, did not stop. 
And so seven southern states petitioned the federal government to prevent the U.S. Post Office from delivering any of it. As southern lawmakers pressured the White House, President Andrew Jackson proposed a bill that would ban all material discussing slavery from being shipped through the U.S. mail. The bill looked slated to pass Congress. The only thing that stopped it, South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun, who killed it in committee. Calhoun was an unlikely opponent of the bill. He was one of the leading promoters in the U.S. government of chattel slavery. In a speech he gave against the bill, he alluded to freedom of the press, but he largely focused on states' rights, namely the right to keep slavery legal as momentum built across the country to end its legalization at the federal level. His committee's report called the abolitionists' efforts to send literature through the U.S. Post Office, quote, evil and highly dangerous, unquote. But Calhoun reluctantly concluded that allowing the federal government to regulate speech could have the unfortunate effect of allowing it to dictate what states could do with regard to slavery. Calhoun saved free speech to save slavery. Except it wasn't really saved at all. To go over each and every instance in American history in which someone was silenced, deplatformed, or even jailed for their opinions would take several thousand pages. End quote. Then I read something in this book that challenged my credibility. It challenged my credibility so much so that I actually Googled to verify it. I was stunned to find it was correct. Most of us are familiar with the free speech example so often quoted about how you are not or should not be protected if you shout fire in a crowded theater. It's generally put forward to illustrate that if free speech is in conflict with imminent harm to people, That is not or should not be protected speech. In reality, however, I learned this example of speech that should not be protected comes from a historic legal case that ended up before the Supreme Court of the United States, Schenck versus the United States, again from the book. One of our most oft-cited quotes about free speech today suggests that it protects you in saying anything short of shouting fire in a crowded theater, i.e., that you can say anything you want unless it incites panic or violence. This is one of the greatest misrememberings of American history for two reasons. The hundred-year-old case it's referencing no longer has any legal bearing on how free speech operates in the United States. And it wasn't even about fires or panic or violence. The fire, referred to in the opinion, was leftist anti-war politics and the movie theater referred to America writ large. The Supreme Court was arguing not about fire safety codes, but about the government's right to jail anyone who might influence Americans against the war. During World War I, Charles Schenck, Secretary of the Socialist Party of America, distributed thousands of pamphlets in Philadelphia urging men to resist being drafted into the army. Quote, Long live the Constitution of the United States. Wake up, America. Your liberties are in danger, unquote. The pamphlet read in bold. The pamphlet argued that being drafted was a form of involuntary servitude, and therefore a violation of the 13th Amendment, and critiqued powerful politicians and their Wall Street backers for preying on average Americans. Schenck did not advocate for any violence or civil disobedience, but he was nonetheless prosecuted under the Espionage Act, The case worked its way up to the Supreme Court, and that's where Oliver Wendell Holmes issued his famous fiery words. Quote, 
The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent, unquote. The court agreed that Schenck's advocacy against the draft was indeed a clear and present danger to the United States, despite the fact that Schenck was not advocating for any violence. His conviction was upheld unanimously. What does that say about our understanding of free speech today that we believe our inherent right to it is so tied to this quote, and that the quote comes from a case where advocating for peaceful resistance was equated with overthrowing the country? At the very least, it means we've misunderstood our historical commitment to free speech as a country. Leftist and anti-racist ideas have often been equated with danger in the United States, from the abolitionist movement to the McCarthy era to today, when leftist protesters are routinely arrested for peaceably assembling. And the prosecution of Americans espousing these dangerous ideas is often justified as a necessary exception to the First Amendment. Have we completely misunderstood the history of free speech in this country, or have we been successfully duped? End the book quote. And so how did we get from there to where we are now? Was there a pivotal point or a gradual progression, a shift of justices? No, actually. The shift was in the power dynamic in the United States. As marginalized people began to make more headway, they began to use these oppressive laws against their privileged oppressors. And that's when our courts decided we ought not to be applying these laws so robustly any longer. Again, from the book. It wasn't until 1969, a mere 50 years ago, that the Supreme Court fundamentally challenged the idea that the government could or should have a deciding role in whether speech is too dangerous to allow. When it finally did reverse itself in Brandenburg versus Ohio, it did so to protect the speech of a KKK leader. Just as was the case with Calhoun and slavery, the country finally agreed to stick up for free speech in an attempt to defend the rights of virulent racists. End quote. I will leave you all with a question Moskowitz puts forward for readers to consider. From the book. How then did something with such murky, morally conflictual beginnings become viewed as an inherent good? Something we should strive for, not only legally, but in every interaction, every protest. Free speech in the United States began as a right reserved only for property-holding white men and was gradually expanded over hundreds of years to include everyone, though some of its largest expansions came in defense of slaveholders, Nazis, and the KKK. While the largest exceptions to those expansions were, and as we'll see in the second half of this book still are, almost universally used against leftists, abolitionists, and anti-racists. Even our most common conception about the limits of free speech, that we should stop speech only when it presents a clear and present danger, comes not from a case in which speech presented a clear and present danger, but from the U.S. government prosecuting peaceful dissenters. This is the history, the bedrock principle, we are upholding. It seems, at the very least, op-ed columnists should acknowledge its deep foundational flaws before making pronouncements about its universal good. Where did they get that idea in the first place? End quote. I intend to at least finish this book. I've already learned more about U.S. history of free speech in one evening than everything I remembered about it from my education. 
And I would be willing to blame myself for that if I didn't see so many other people around me with the same misconceptions. I encourage you to do more reading on your own. I know I will. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.